Hello and welcome to the Technology in Life Sciences Branch and James podcast. My name is Toby and I'm your host and today I am joined by Christopher Roach. Chris, delighted to have you here. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a good opportunity to have a good chat about uh, the state of the industry and where things are going. Perfect. Yeah, really appreciate you coming on being the inaugural guest on, on this podcast. This will be the, the first of a mini-series focusing on the technology in life sciences in particular with a focus on sort of medical devices, surgical robotics and medical robotics. So Chris, obviously it's great to have you here today. It would be great for you to sort of share with the, the audience a little bit about yourself and uh, sort of what you've been up to in your career so far. Sure, well, I'm a mechanical engineer, um, which means that I went back to university way back in the day, uh, late 80s, early 90s, ended up doing a PhD in precision engineering. Uh, since that time, I did various different roles doing mainly new products introduction across a lot of different kinds of industries, from very small things up to quite big things. Uh, and then in 2011, ended up working for one of the consultancies around Cambridge, which is a company called Sagentia. Uh, now, Sagentia, being a consultancy, get involved with lots of different things. Uh, and one of the strange things about the Cambridge hub, because a lot of consultancies, a lot of high-tech companies around there, is that the consultancies tend to attract quite a lot of work from North American um, mm-hmm. medical device companies. I think they are arm length enough that the competitors don't necessarily know mm-hmm. what they're up to and can't sneak too easily, so it, it works out quite well for them. So that's where I got my first introduction into medical devices. So I did a lot of work on uh, diagnostic devices, some surgical devices, and point-of-care type things. And that was really the introduction of how you work under a much more regulated um, kind of environment than you would for ordinary products which you just develop, you know, your ordinary consumer goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's quite a lot of extra rigour involved yeah. in that. <laughs> yeah, perfect. And obviously, yeah. Uh... Your career's led you to, to where you are today, obviously, your most recent experience being at CMR Surgical, being yeah. one of the sort of founding employees there. It must have been such a, an exciting journey that you've been on there. It was. Uh, it was a strange transition because, uh, as I said, was working at Sagentia at the time, which I got the first introduction to medical devices. At the time, um, one of the people who was one of the founders, uh, Luke Hayes, was working at Sagentia too, so I worked with him. Um, and Paul Roberts was the head of electronics there, worked with him. And Keith Marshall was my line manager mm-hmm. at Sagentia. Yeah. So when they went off to form um, CR Cambridge Medical Robotics, as it was back in the day, because yeah. it did have a, a name change, uh, Keith then gave me a ring, ring up um, a few months in once they got settled and asked would I be interested to join, which is always a bit of a risk, you think, at first to join a brand new startup when you've got an established company because uh, you know they're going to be there the next year, but startups are slightly more fraught. But uh, it turned out to be quite a good move. Uh, it's been quite a big journey, so I think it was about, it was about 17 people when I joined, uh, and we'll all, you could fit the whole company into this room, uh, up to when I left, it was over a thousand, so it's been a, a huge learning, a lot of good experience of doing the product development, also building a company too. Yeah, no, of course, and uh, obviously being there from the, from the beginning is, is such an exciting journey that, that you've been on. Just sort of want to focus on the, the surgical robotics market in general. Obviously, it's such a, a huge area for development at the moment, and there's a lot of big companies that are working on it all across the globe. So the, from your perspective, you've been involved firsthand in sort of seeing that growth and development. Sort of how in, interesting has it been to be part of that development? Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. As a, first of all, as a mechanical engineer, it's an incredibly complicated challenge. Surgical robots are difficult. They're yeah. amazingly integrated. You've got the integration between the mechanics, software uh, and the electronics and everything has to come together at the same time and do the same thing in the same place so when you're going about designing something like that you need to take all these different teams on a journey together at the same time 
which is no good to say I could go off as a mechanic engineer. I'd be quite happy to go off and design the perfect arm, so the optimal weight to stiffness ratio. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you find out that there's not really enough room to put the electronics in that you need, or the electronics you can fit in and aren't powerful enough to run the software that you need. So everybody needs to come together uh, and develop all together at the same time in order to avoid these, these rework loops. And also within that, you need to be very cognizant of what do the regulations say? Um, because electrical safety is very, very important for um, surgical ro robots. If you imagine that you've got the end of pointy thing inside a patient, and inside the patients are actually quite conductive, it turns out. So you don't want to have any kind of uh, uh, leakage currents uh, above certain limits, which could potentially harm the patient. And ensuring you meet all those requirements is actually pretty tough. Yes, certainly. And you, you mentioned there sort of the, the regulation. Obviously, for a number of medical devices, it's so important to be able to get the the ISO, the FDA and CE marked. Um, sort of tell me a little about that process and sort of how how difficult it is to actually get to that stage. Yeah, those are fundamental to be able to market a medical device. Um, one of the things that differentiates medical devices from ordinary consumer goods is that you need to have a not what's called a notified body to do your certification for you. So you if you were just to make ordinary consumer goods, you can say, yep, guarantee you it's good enough for this market and it'd be up to you to prove that if anything did go wrong. Uh, with medical devices you don't get that choice, you have to put it to an, an independent body called a notified body who then do all the tests for you to make sure you are producing something that is safe. Uh, now there's lots of standards which you can manufacture against, um, medical devices generally single ISO 60601 which is quite a comprehensive document and it's mainly to do with electrical safety to help make sure the patient uh, isn't harmed in any way but also the operator too, the surgeon in our case. Uh, you can, if you want, make up your own standards. There's nothing to you know, force you to use in these, but that would be quite a, a tough job, I think, to convince a notified body that your idea of what's good is as good as the ISO standards. So the ISO standards are generally the way to do it. So what you do is you, you design against that. Um, you then um, do lots of trials, so lots of verification validation work to prove that what the output is is what your requirements say you should be, which then also meets standards. And then once you're available, ready for, say, for um, CE marking, you've reached that point, your product's mature enough, uh, you then ask your notified body to take that on. It takes quite a long time, it's quite an expensive process, but then they then go through all those clauses in those documents and check that you, you're compliant. Uh, and if you are, then happy days, you get your CE marking and then you're free to uh, to sell that wherever the CE mark is the, the valid um, standard for sale. Similarly with the FDA, if you want to do that, then it's a similar process, slightly different, but similar. And China, FDA, and whoever else as well, they also have their own sorts of sets of standards, but roughly it's all the same. You've got to demonstrate that your product is working and it's safe. Yeah, and I guess uh, a lot of companies in the industry are sort of focusing that at the moment to be able to get their products onto the market. Just in terms of the actual time frame it takes to, to get these these certificates, sort of how long would you say on average it took you at CMR to get to this stage? Uh, it does take quite a long time, I think. Um, to bring Versius from the point where there was no company, we incorporated the company, through to having its CE mark was about 500 man years of effort. So at that time, I think it took five years, it was about an average of 100 people. So that's roughly what we yeah. CMR was quite focused though. There are a number of very large companies, medical companies, who still haven't come to market yet with mm -hmm. their products, even though they started at the same time. Um, and it, so it does depend on the company. The way that CMR was, we only had this development to do. We didn't have an existing product portfolio which we had to support in parallel to doing the development. So that then freed up a lot of effort, of course, because then you've only concentrated on one thing. Uh, and plus, um, everybody, the senior management, having come from more of a consultancy background, 
But consultants, what you do is you sell a job and you've got a finite budget, you've got a finite time, and your customer expects a deliverable at the end of that. So you you have quite a regimented way of running those projects. And CMR was run exactly the same way from day one. Uh, it was very, very regimented. Everybody's brought together and it worked really, really well. So from a project management point of view, it was very successful in order five years from nothing to a CE marked surgical robot. Yeah, obviously with CMR being one of the sort of most successful in the industry at doing what they have with, with Versius, sort of how did you notice a, a change when in within the company once you did receive the, uh, the certificates? Uh, it was interesting. Having the transition from a startup to being a more mature company where you've actually got a product to sell uh, is quite a, a step. So what we found is that some people who wanted to be in that startup phase, do all that whizzy new innovation things, they didn't want so much to hang on for the whole journey to see the product through into maturation. Um, so a lot of people started to leave at that point. And at that point, then we started to get the, more, the different kinds of skill sets in which we needed then to grow the business. Plus, we're more focused on how you go about manufacturing a product. So we had a, a manufacturing side of the business mm. to add to, uh, which adds uh, a new dynamic to the company. Because you imagine if you're a startup where everybody knows everybody, very, very small company. Uh, and then you start to build that and it suddenly gets bigger uh, and then you start getting people with different roles which you never needed before because historically you did everything yourself. One of the mm. things about a startup is you wear many, many hats and you get involved in lots of different things but now suddenly you get much more differentiation in the roles. Uh, so how you about handle that, how you go through that whole change management, how you bring people along the journey because obviously there's a lot of knowledge and people that have uh, designed a lot of this, you don't want them to leave, you want to take them on that journey with you. But also it's very important, I think, um, if you are the designer, say, and yeah. you have come up with this great product like a Versius, but you need to be able to manufacture that. What mm. you want to be able to do is really put all the bits in the box, because a box of shape, and out pops a Versius. And if it's any more difficult than that, you need to be thinking, how can I help this? How can I improve this? Because all the costs that you've designed in through your decisions are all baked in there. So uh, having that, closing that loop and giving people the opportunity to see the output and see potential difficulties with the choices they make and how they can simplify and they can improve that so then the next time they develop something, uh, they've got all those lessons in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And you briefly touched on there about sort of how important it is to work really cross-collaboratively with other departments within the company. Sort of from the, the years of experience you have, how important has that been to you to be able to not just work for yourself as a, a mechanical engineer, but then sort of the regulatory, the uh, commercial aspects of all the different departments within the yeah. company. Yeah, it's absolutely vital to get a successful product um, out as quickly as you possibly can. Um, in the development phase, as I mentioned earlier, everybody needs to work together in the development across the different technical skill sets in order to produce a product in the first place. But then you also need to be working with your supply chain to set up um, who's going to supply you, can they scale with you, uh, do they have the right um, skill sets themselves, do they have access to the right materials. Uh, are they um, considered to be a good c company? Because obviously we want to work with good suppliers, the ones potentially ones which uh, might not be in business in five years. So there's lots of work needs to go on in parallel. Uh, also, then once you start thinking about how do you market this, how do you, what does it, what does it look like, what does it do, how do we show this to the world? Uh, so you've got to bring that side of the business on as well. You've also then got to think about well, how many of these we're going to build, how big a facility do we need for the new factory. How big will stores be? How many stores will we need? Mm. Uh, lots of things. Everything you do when you design a product, every single component, um, somebody has to order. Then it has to arrive at your goods in. Somebody has to inspect it. Somebody has to put it on a shelf somewhere. Then when it comes to doing the build, somebody has to go and pick that up. 
stick it in the kit with all the other bits, and then somebody at the end of that has to put it all together. So with all these parts that you add, and even though you might think it's only a screw and then plus a pen, in reality, it's got quite a big bill attached to it. So you need to be cognizant of all of this across the business as much as you possibly can in order to try and give yourself a very efficient uh, product, which is very easy to put together. Yeah, perfect. And of course, it's not just about sort of the, the company itself when it comes to a surgical robot. You've got to work really closely with hospitals as well and sort of uh, academic institutions as well. Yeah. Sort of how have you seen sort of the relationship grow between sort of the, the product and hospitals and, and surgeons? The surgeons and surgical teams are absolutely vital to have that input when you're doing your development work because when you come up with a new product, you want to be able to fit with their workflow. You don't want to cause uh, a massive disruption. So with Versius, uh, we took a lot of input from a lot of different surgeons. We had a medical advisory board, uh, which was run by one of our founders, Mark Slack, who's a surgeon at Addenbrooke's Hospital at the time. Uh, he's now full-time with CMR. Uh, that input was vital for understanding how people go about using it, what kind of um, feel they would need, uh, what, how big things needed to be, where they wanted to place things. Um, so, for instance, the, one of the initial concepts which we had for the arms themselves would be that we could dock them as we needed around mm. the bed. So if you needed three arms, you'd dock three arms and you'd take away the ones you didn't, put them in a box, store them for later. When we did our trials with the, the, uh, the teams from the surgical side, um, we found that the nurses didn't really want to pick these arms up because they were quite mm. expensive. They were potentially delicate and didn't yeah. want to damage them. So that then quickly had to flip into how can we develop a bedside unit in order to hold the arms so that they'd be much easier to wheel around, which is a much better idea uh, and a much better solution. Uh, but that's the kind of thing which you, you find out from engaging with your, your teams, your, your stakeholders early on. Uh, and that goes all the way through, not just from um, how you go about designing the product, but then you think about, well, how many of these, how many operations will uh, a system typically do in a week or a, a month or a year? Uh, how do we integrate with the hospital's uh, eco-structure so that they um, their buy-in is integrated with yours so that they know they're going to need, um, say, 10 fenestrated graspers this week, a couple of hooks, and whatever other instruments which they might need. And then how do you ship that? What packaging size do you need? Because all this is another knock-on then, because each when you have a defined set of packs, uh, you've got a thing called a G-TIN, which is your unique identifier for that. Then you need to understand, well, the guy receives it, how does he store it? You know, does he need to put it on a very high shelf, or does he have something which he can very easily get? You need to break the pack down. Um, so you can make all these informed decisions if you've got that information uh, to make their life much easier too so you can fit much more seamlessly in uh, with their processes. Uh, excellent. I guess uh, from a, a surgeon's perspective as well, being able to sort of easily use this this uh, equipment, uh, sort of how important was that and how much consideration did you take into that when it comes to sort of making the surgeon's life a lot easier? That is one of the most important things. I think one of the things which perhaps wasn't terribly understood about surgical robots is that they make the surgeon's life better. Mm. Uh, if you imagine um, you've got a patient lying here uh, in front of us, it's an operating table, uh, and a surgeon who wants to do normal um, sort of laparoscopic surgery, uh, the big advantage of laparoscopic surgery over open surgery is that your wounds are much smaller. Mm. Uh, so your um, chance of infection, or if you do get an infection, it's over a much smaller site, so it's much easier to heal. Uh, so generally, um, people, patients get out of hospital much, much quicker uh, having um, keyhole surgery and open surgery. So surgeons have become quite ambitious over the years with what they can do. Uh, and some of the things which they can do are actually quite difficult. Yeah. Um, so we've got a lot of stuff inside us and we're not really built for maintenance and guaranteed the bit that they want to get to has got a bunch of other stuff in the way. So what they have to do is you've got a bed which might move. So you might say if you're doing um, things in the abdomen, you might 
angle the bed so that the head is lower in the abdomen so your organs will move to the top mm. uh, to give a little bit more space and I also use a thing called insufflation which is effectively pump you full of um, carbon dioxide just to raise your stomach out to give again a little bit more room but it's still quite difficult because there's still a lot of stuff in there and you can't it's not like when you work on your car so you take stuff off and put it to one mm. side and then refit it back afterwards once you're finished um, the other thing about doing ordinary straight stick um, surgery is that uh, it's very strange the way that it works if you imagine you've got a port which is the hole effectively in the patient and yeah. you've got a straight stick through if you wanted to move the tip upwards because you've got a pivot point you have to move your hand down similarly with left and right everything's inverted so it's it's a different way of thinking then you've also in order to see inside the patient because obviously they're closed you've got a camera an endoscope yeah. uh, and guaranteed that's going to be somewhere over there so the patient's going to be here and you're looking you're bending over the patient you're looking over there you're trying to make judgments backwards about what your hands are doing so what we find is that um, surgeons who do a lot of um, laparoscopic surgeries they do tend to get quite a lot of neck strains arm strains mm. neck you know all sorts of muscle strains and this can then limit their careers because it is an awful thing and again taking the analogy of working in your car it's not something you can just close the garage door and go back to it the next day yeah. you know you've opened your patient up and you've got to finish that so you're there uh, so what the big advantage of the robot is effectively it's like a big power tool so it takes away all the stresses and strains and loads uh, off, the, off the surgeon and puts it into a machine so it's kind of a good analogy is if you ever built self-assembly furniture yeah. uh, and you've got a manual screwdriver and you're going to be cursing that after 10 minutes but if you've got an electric one then suddenly you could whiz through it it's no yeah. problem at all so what Versius is is effectively an electric screwdriver uh, it is it, the whole thing about robotics is that it's not true robotics; it's robotic assisted. So there's always man in the loop. The surgeon's always there; he's always doing the driving. Um, so effectively, what this is is a nice big powered tool in order to take that away. And it has so now instead of the surgeon being you know in a position where they have to use their muscles and they can be uncomfortable to be there for several hours, uh, you now have a surgeon on a console, so he's comfortably seated. Uh, everything's ergonomically arranged, so he's got access to hand controllers which control the tip of the instrument uh, and. It's very easy. You've got a 3D monitor which is just in front of you. Um, for Versius, the console is a nice open console, so it's very good line of sight to the patient and to the rest of the surgical team. Um, so that is a really big advantage. Uh, and so he's able then to complete the surgery without any ill effects on himself. Mm. It means then, from the surgeon's point of view, that potentially they could do more than one surgery in a day. They could do several surgeries. And we do have instances where we have many surgeries being done, whereas previously that would be a much more limited number because the surgeon uh, wasn't able to uh, physically able to do that. Uh, in addition, because then it's easier to do certain tasks, things like suturing, where you actually tie a knot inside a patient. Um, trying to do it with straight sticks is, I don't know how they do it, it's virtually impossible. Um, Mark Sack thinks it takes about 80 hours to train a surgeon how to do this inside a patient with straight stick. With Versius, because you have wristed instruments, one of the great advantages with the robot is that you effectively have um, pitch and yaw and grasp. So it's like having little hands inside the patient. So suddenly, anybody, I can do yeah. sutures. Yeah. Like it isn't pretty good sutures, but straight stick, no chance. So suddenly, a lot of the learning becomes much, much more um, easy. Uh, and the teaching then for new surgeons becomes much more straightforward. So you have this, you've unblocked this pipeline where you've suddenly got surgeons which are now able to do more surgeries. Uh, you've got surgeons which are then able to work for longer because they'll have less injuries. Uh, and then you've got an easy way to train new surgeons. So suddenly you're unblocking one of the big blockers, which currently is that there's just not enough surgeons who can do uh, keyhole surgery. So more people have open surgery than we'd really like to because the skills aren't there with uh, 
keyhole surgeons. So now things like Versius are a great enabler to overcome that so that we can suddenly unblock this. So then suddenly you have patients who no longer have open surgery in the hospital and maybe stay two, three days, suddenly they can be walking out the next day. So you've got this much greater throughput potential. So from a, a whole ecosystem of the health service, it, it is a real win-win situation. Yeah, certainly. And obviously you mentioned there sort of the, the actual console being a lot more ergonomically uh, easier to use for the surgeon. Sort of how much work and design do you actually put into that to make sure that it is so it makes the surgeon's life as easy as physically possible? Uh, it was massive. The, I think the current version which you see out today, there was probably four or five different generations before that, before we hit on what we thought was, was the correct sort of size, uh, the form factor, uh, the usability. Uh, there's a lot of considerations put into it. So, for instance, that particular console which the Versius uses will go from the 5th percentile Chinese urban ladies seated to the 98th percentile high-income US male standing, and everybody in between. Uh, we've made it so that it's only it's less than 900 millimeters wide. So one of the big things, the big advantages with Versius is that you don't need to dedicate an OR to it. If you mm. want to put it in this room, you could do surgery in this room and then you just wheel it out. So it fits virtually everywhere you might ever think you might need to do a surgery. So there was a lot of thought went into this. And then not only that, then you also think, well, you've got to ship this across the world. So you've got a consideration of, you know, how you go about what temperature differences will it have, how much vibration will it have. So a lot of all these design considerations get put into that. Uh, also things like how big are people's hands with hand controllers, about where you put the buttons, how you make that as ergonomically as uh, easy as you possibly can. But still also keep in mind that some things you don't want to accidentally press, you don't want to accidentally activation serve energy um, devices. So you've got to make things compromising where you put some certain buttons in order to be able to address the safety aspect plus uh, enable the surgeons still to do what they want to do as easy as they possibly can. Yeah, and obviously you just mentioned that the safety aspect there, it's not like the analogy you use when you're sort of, if you're changing a tyre on a car, that's only a tyre. This is people's lives and, and bodies that the surgeons are, are operating with. So just how important is it to, to make sure that nothing does go wrong throughout this process? Uh, safety is, uh, during surgery, is quite an interesting one. Um, as a designer, uh, I remember when we first started doing this, and I thought, no matter what I'm going to do, we're going to kill somebody, it's going to be dreadful. Uh, but Mark Slack, our um, chief medical officer, yeah. is, was very good at reassuring that. His point of view is that they've got a patient who's undergoing surgery anyway. So what you're doing is, as long as you're not making any more, any less safe than a manual um, operation, then you're still in a, in a good position. So the main thing is when you've got an electrically powered system like a robot is uh, electrical safety. Um, that is key, because I mentioned earlier, um, inside with people, um, they're quite conductive. Uh, and what you want to do is make sure that, say, if you've got different instruments which belong to different arms, the voltage potential between them is very, very mm -hmm. low, so there's no leakage current between them. Because um, even small currents can cause burns, and it can be that um, outside of the surgical view, because remember, he's only got this little camera he can see, so he doesn't see the, the, the fullness of everything inside the patient. Uh, it is possible that things can, like that can happen, and they have happened in surgeries in the past. Um, so that then leads on the development of the standards, which we mentioned earlier, the mm. 60601. So by complying with those and making sure that um, you've taken into account as much as you, as much as you can, uh, that you comply with all these things and you've thought about this. One of the other things which you do during the design phase is uh, a tool called an FMEA, which is a failure mode effect analysis. Now this can be used in various different ways, uh, and it is just as exciting as it sounds, I'm afraid. Um, but it's an absolute critical um, thing to manage your risk, because what it does is you think about 
Um, and so you come up with a design for something. You start off with a D FMEO, which is design FMEO. So you think about what could fail, what's the likelihood of that failing, what the consequence, how severe would that be from a patient's mm-hmm. point of view. Uh, and then you give a score. And then for things above a certain threshold, you think, right, that's too high. We need to redesign this. Uh, and uh, it's a live document so that as you go through, so even though you've produced your, your um, versus system and you've mitigated all the risks, what you find is that sometimes in the field that people use things in a different way that you hadn't anticipated. So you then need to revisit that and go through it again just to make sure you are always staying safe. So let's say on the design side, similarly, if you've got the user, um, what could the user do with that? So you get a UFMEA. Mm-hmm. So you look at things, all the things which they could do wrong, which potentially could end up in harm. So then you try to mitigate all those. So you design out things that things won't fit in the wrong place, you know, uh, make sure that it's very intuitive as to how you set things up. All these kind of things should capture that as much as possibly can. And again, it's a living document too. So what you find is that once it gets out into the real world and you see that people are using it in a slightly different way, um, you revisit that document again. And then again, once you start to manufacture, you've also then got a process in order to be able to build something. So you've got a key FME. Yeah. So everything, risk is very, very important. It's very, very highly managed. And again, all these documents are live. So whenever there's a change, you go back, revisit that and make sure that everything is as safe as it possibly can be. So Chris, you mentioned change there being sort of so important in the industry. I guess from a, a personal perspective in your career, you've gone through many changes, in particular from sort of being a technical lead into more of a management position. Sort of, How did you find that transition? That's an interesting journey. Uh, what you find is as the team grows uh, and your responsibilities change, uh, you often find you end up mentoring younger, uh, less experienced engineers, uh, bringing them on board, uh, and you start to become uh, a team lead. Now, you can have some kind of informal team such as that where you just help other people out, or in a more sort of uh, formalized way, perhaps, uh, become line management. Um, and I find myself doing both uh, from time to time. Uh, and it is an interesting transition. Um, the big advantage, even as a technical side, is that you suddenly have more people to do your technical tasks with you. So instead of you having to do all the simulations, all the design, um, record all the data, write the documentation, suddenly you've got a whole team of people who can help you out with that. So you can make much more progress uh, much more easily. Uh, and also then you get many more heads and eyes looking at things, so you get much more review, um, so your peer review process can improve quite a lot as well. Uh, on the sort of more formal side, um, then what we did was we took on some legal advice first of all because I'd never been a line manager, line manager up until um, the CMR. So first of all is you know, what are you supposed to do, what does it really mean? Uh, as well as pastoral care, of course there are in the UK um, certain legal obligations which you need to go with that. Yeah. So we had some basic training around that. But more latterly, one of the great things which we found is having uh, how to develop teams training. Uh, and some of these have been very good and I can recommend a guy called Patrick Stahl, a Swedish guy particularly if you ever get the opportunity to meet him. Uh, he does some really good um, training as to how you go about developing world-class teams. Uh, and from that, there's lots of takeaways, but one of my, my personal favorite takeaways is uh, uh, the idea of psychological safety, mm. which is where uh, you have the ability to be challenged within your team and you can challenge others um, in safety. So nobody feels that they're left out. There's no hesitations that should I mention this? I'm not sure about that. Everybody can get together and discuss things freely and openly uh, in, in a non-critical um, situation. So there's, uh, there's an opportunity to get everybody heard, uh, views aired, uh, and at the end of that, you try new things, um, and things usually work out a lot better having that. And I found that particular aspect of team development to be very important. 
Yeah, and of course with it, with team development, sort of having people that feel comfortable and safe in the workplace also helps really develop that workplace culture as well. And yeah. it's not just in the, the surgical robotics industry, but in any industry, workplace culture is obviously so, so important. From your point of view, sort of how have you seen the, the culture develop from a, a company when you joined of only sort of 17 people to now being a company of sort of over 1,000 people? Uh, it has changed quite a bit. Um, we made some very conscious decisions early on though to try to keep it mm. as friendly and as kind of family oriented as we possibly could for as long as we possibly could. Uh, and that stayed at CMR. So for instance, uh, we ran everything through um, agile methodology that you will have sprints. So at the end of every sprint, we would all get together and um, have a barbecue. So, and everybody would get involved with this. So the CEO flipping burgers as much <laughs> as, you know, the, the guy around the stores. And everybody was in there together mixing up. And that, that was very, very successful. Uh, more likely, we've become much more conscious of diversity, inclusion, and belonging. So for instance, so we have uh, a program uh, around that. So we have ambassadors to try to lead that to make sure everybody feels included. Because uh, there's an awful lot of skills and talent out there, and you shouldn't be judging anybody because you know they don't look like you or sound like you or mm. whatever reason. And I think uh, a lot of opportunities have been missed um, in certain places in the past because of that. And I think uh, what they're doing now is uh, is absolutely the right thing to do. And CMR also then have uh, a biannual survey of the staff to capture feedback, make sure that they are leading in the right way, and make changes and be seen to make changes uh, in. Of things that people aren't happy with, or things people want to improve. And uh, obviously, you as sort of the line manager for, for a number of people, sort of, did you see sort of any changes in culture whilst you was uh, in charge? Uh, I think culture-wise, uh, we, as I mentioned, trying to keep it the important things, trying to keep it feel like a nice place to go. For me, work is it's very important. It's not just something you do to earn a wage. It's something that you should want to do. You spend so much of your life in work. Yeah. Uh, so what I want to do is try to foster an environment where people come on Monday morning and go, great, it's Monday, we get to go to work, we get to do this great thing again, we get to be on this journey. Um, and try to get people to buy into the journey of the company and the mission of the company as much as uh, having a job. So that they feel that when they go to work, they meet people that they know, they want to socialise with, uh, they understand and everybody what feels like they're pulling together in order to achieve something which is really, really worthwhile. Uh, try to keep that constant, but develop that. Uh, when you bring new people in, of course, people have come from different industries, they have different backgrounds. Uh, that can be a challenge at first, but I think once you've demonstrated to them and they've been through um, some of these conversations with other people who've seen this also, uh, it becomes quite clear that uh, if you can make, if you can buy into that and get more people to buy into that, then suddenly it, it's, it's just a great place to work. Yeah, and you mentioned there sort of the people coming from different backgrounds and in particular different industries. Obviously, that the surgical robotics one is one that is extremely regulated. Sort of, how important do you feel it is for someone, say, they're looking to join a surgical robotics company, to actually have experience working in a, a medical device setting? That would be ideal if you do have experience um, working under thirteen four eight five, uh, fourteen nine seven one, and all the risk stuff which goes with that. That would be fantastic. That that is, you know, a big sort of help up. Um, it's not necessarily the be all and end all though, um, because you can demonstrate um, sort of having that experience in, in other ways. Um, aviation is quite well uh, regulated, as is a lot of military stuff. Um, so that's two industries which, again, space uh, very similar. Uh, but even on your ordinary, more ordinary style 9000 series, as long as you understand 
that there is a process that you need to follow and the importance of that process and you can talk about that so for instance uh, your quality man management system um, in a medical company that really is uh, a key thing it's one of the, the most important fundamental things that any medical device company can have and needs to have uh, it's less so in um, say fast moving consumer goods it doesn't matter so much but uh, if you can use that and demonstrate that you understand that why it's important maybe take on some internal auditing to make sure that your company is um, compliant with that that shows that you understand the process you understand the importance of it and it gives, also gives you uh, an overview as to what the other functions of the company do which you might not normally interact with uh, so that's a very beneficial thing uh, to be able to do mm, of course and everyone's got to start from somewhere Absolutely. imagine when you first got into the, the medical device area you had sort of no previous experience of that sort of how long do you feel it really took you to get a real good grasp of the industry uh, that did take a while there are quite a lot of um, particularly in standards I think uh, from a technical point of view you needed to um, understand how to design against those to mitigate the risks that we've discussed uh, other than that I think good engineering as a mechanical engineer mm. translates quite freely into um, other areas uh, and that's uh, fortunate enough to be able to bring some good ideas and some uh, learnings from previous places, uh, transport them over. Mainly it's the documentation, um, the level mm. of rigor which you need to do when you develop something which is medical compared to uh, any other industry, which you need to um, document, you need to make sure that it's right, it needs to be reviewed. That then takes quite a lot longer to do rather than just be able to design something, put it out there. Uh, so that's one of the key things is the 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 mindset of rigor and check and make sure that it has been reviewed and it does do what you think it does and it's safe to do that. Uh, amazing and uh, I guess in terms of the sort of future developments of this te technology and sort of people looking to get into the industry, sort of what advice would you give to sort of someone say just coming off the back of a PhD to, to sort of go into the surgical robotics industry? Uh, give it a go. Uh, it is a fantastic place to work. It is literally the cutting edge of technology which we have uh, in this country. There's not, not many places in the world where you can get involved with something which is ultimately state of the art uh, and in a medical environment too. So it is a very, very exciting industry. Uh, what you need to do is really just persevere. I think you need to find what you're interested in, um, work out what companies would um, cover those kinds of interests and then try to push yourself to uh, to get those interviews. Yeah, excellent. And uh, obviously it's such a, an exciting industry. Uh, many of the people I speak to, one thing they mention is how they really want to get into the, the medical device, surgical robotics uh, area. But uh, in terms of the, the market in general, the, the future is obviously very exciting. And I guess we're really, we're still in its infancy. So yeah. where do you see that the market developing in say the next five to 10 years? Uh, I think robotics is going to be fairly ubiquitous um, within probably 10 years across a wide range of different specialities. You'll know from seeing the number of startups uh, popping up all around the world, looking at all sorts of different aspects of um, surgery or medical advancements in mm. general. Um, there's a lot to be done. Um, the last um, 10 years has seen quite a, quite a change and I think that will continue to uh, exponentially uh, continue on. Added to the number of different types of um, problems which these new robotic systems will, will address, 
you've got other new technologies coming on, like AI, for instance. Mm -hmm. So the big advantage of that, uh, and as we know, there have been the likes of Google have been interested in this in the past, uh, there's an awful lot of data which can be generated from surgeries. So what we find is that um, when a surgeon does a particular kind of surgery, knowing how long it takes him to do things, a, a basic level would be, you know, how long does it take to set up, how long does it take to do certain aspects of the procedure and how long does it take to close up. What you find is that you can measure that and then you can start to work out how, what standard operation should look like, which then feeds into the information for the hospital. They can start to plan more effectively. It also means that when you start training new surgeons and you start seeing differences in timings, you can work out then how long you can expect them, how many surgeries you need to do in order to be as good as your experienced surgeries. Or you might have one who's a real rock star and mm -hmm. suddenly is uh, far better at certain aspects and you can take that data and learn from them, transport that to the rest of the population and then suddenly everybody gets better. But you've also got other things which are things like machine vision uh, and mm -hmm. machine understanding yeah. what it's seeing on the screen. So at the moment, all that's on the screen is purely for the surgeon's benefit. But with that data, what could be interesting is with, you see um, things like the NHS now has AI for looking at things like mammograms to try to mm -hmm. detect tumours more early, which may be missed by human operators. You could have that same thing on the screen uh, during a surgery, so the, the AI, your user, your user interface might say, look at this area over here, I've not seen that before, that looks a bit suspicious, have a quick peek, or might be checking that, say, if there's something that needs to be removed, that it has all completely been removed. We might be able to detect differences in colour or texture or something like that which may give a key to making sure this, the operation is more successful uh, at one level. The next level after that would be perhaps you want to guide the surgeon or stop them potentially from doing something which may be risky or at least put the question mark in their mind and say are you really want to sure you want to cut that? What about coming access from this side for instance? Mm. Uh, if you could add that level of uh, sort of automation to it. And then from that, eventually, you could have fully automated systems. Um, there have been some demonstrations already with some robotic systems which can um, do some automated suturing. Uh, things like that, I think, will come in the not-too-distant future, be much more common. Anything much more than that, it's a bit like the driverless cars. Yeah. Uh, they're always going to be, they've always been promised next year, next year, next year. So I think they'll, they're still, particularly in surgery, that's still some way off. Uh, still an awful lot of learning to be done in order before we can release truly robotic surgery on people. Yeah, of course, and I guess from a, a patient perspective as well, they need to see that these robots actually are going to do the job and, and yeah. not going to not going to kill them. <laughs> and they they like to see the sort of uh, an actual surgeon being there and sort of yeah. taking control. And that's obviously where sort of the the market's got to grow and sort of the the knowledge between sort of the surgeons and patients is going yes. to sort of uh, improve. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that the surgeon being close that that's always important because. Until you open up a patient, you don't really know what's inside, oftentimes. So what they find is that sometimes it could be more complicated or things can go wrong sometimes. So you always need a surgeon there potentially to tidy up because there is always the opportunity for um, something to go wrong and you need money to convert to open surgery, say. So if you have uh, a remote teleoperated system with the patient and surgeon separated by 5,000 miles, yeah. the opportunities for things... Um, to intervene would be more limited from that particular surgeon, so you always need somebody there. The whole surgical robotics thing, of course, came about from uh, a US Department of Defense thing, DARPA project back in the 80s. Uh, what they wanted to do was they wanted to have field hospitals close to the front line, and instead of having surgeons, you've seen MASH, uh, instead of having surgeons potentially where they could come under fire themselves, uh, they wanted surgeons safely behind the lines, some robot system up front which they could drive remotely. 
Now, back in the day, uh, of course, this technology was didn't support that, um, but it did give us what became eventually uh, the Da Vinci from Intuitive. That's where that came from, uh, and from that we've seen uh, you know several more milestones in design and development, um, and the way that the the robot is designed, the things it's designed to do. Uh, from that, so that in itself has been quite a, a successful kickstart to a whole new technology. Then you mentioned there sort of the milestones. Obviously, you mentioned the Da Vinci there as one, but I guess um, the next big milestone, in your opinion, sort of if you had to sort of have a guess, wh where would you say that would be? Uh, that's a very good question. I think it's going to start to be more automation, as I mentioned uh, before start to uh, encourage surgeon more learning so the data side I think is going to be the massive thing. Um, companies like CMR they have a registry so um, everybody that does a surgery is invited to um, upload that data to the registry so that you start to get metrics and data for what's a good surgery, what does it look like. Uh, things like that will start to become much more important uh, and then as I mentioned how you go about uh, instructing the machine to instruct the surgeon uh, potentially to give better patient patient outcomes from that because that's one thing which we all want to do um, is be in hospital less um, mm. and if you do have to go to hospital make sure you have a very good outcome. Perfect. Uh, look I really appreciate you being the inaugural guest of the, the Technology and Life Science podcast here at Barrington James and uh, best of luck in the future and yeah really uh, appreciate you giving me your time today to, to come on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me it's been uh, an honour to be first. Not a problem my pleasure. Uh, yeah, so to all the listeners, stay tuned for updates on the next podcast and look forward to speaking to you again soon.